All right. We're continuing in Jonah. Next week, we're going to do a sermon called Jonah Jesus. And we're going to look at Jonah as a type of Christ. There's so much here in this story of Jonah that relates to the gospel, the coming of Christ. That's how we're going to wrap up the series. But we'll finish the story, the study of the story today. And I want to start by establishing this. Every one of us here today, I myself as your pastor, we are all a work in progress. All of us are. As much as Christ is revealed through many of us as we are learning to be conformed to who he is, that work never finishes until, as Paul puts it to the church at Corinth, looking to our resurrection, this corruptible puts on incorruptibility. We don't have incorruptibility right now. That's a superpower. And you and I don't have it. We are corruptible. But we are works in progress. And if there's any axiom that we should take from this when we look at the story of Jonah, it's that which Lou introduced us to on week two. We are Jonah. We are all works in progress. And Jonah is a work in progress. I was thinking through my own story uh, about this, how I still see myself very much as on a journey. By the way, that's why we named the church the way we did. We chose that name to depict the fact that all of us are growing, and so anyone's welcome to come and take that next step that God has for them here. My motto as pastor is like Paul's when he said, you follow me as I follow Christ. The only right I have to ask you to come along is because I'm following the great leader. But I'm a work in progress. I think back to significant stages in my life where God brought me to this moment of discovery. Sometimes it was through great pain, you know. Other times it was through other things. When I was in my early 30s, we had been traveling doing concerts 200 days a year all over the United States and Canada, some international ministry as well. And we had moved from that into my first church pastorate in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. And during that early period in my 30s, I began to have great rage. Oh, I'm just embarrassed to think about what the church folks would think if they watched me uh, dealing with vid. I remember one time I got so mad over something. I don't even remember what it was. I got so mad, I screamed so loud I lost my voice, and then I got out of the car and slammed the door and just went walking down the road, leaving my wife and my kids in the car. I want you to know I have doubled back many times and said I'm sorry to my kids and my wife for that expression of rage because none of them deserved it. But the thing that God had to bring out that I think was at the source of that rage was a desire to control and be right. And so rather than have you prove me wrong, I'll just outshout you. I needed to control. I needed to be right. That was my idol at that stage in my life. Last week we talked about that verse in James say this with me, a double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. And that word double-minded, dipsychos, really means double-hearted, right? Double soul. I love God, but I loved this idol in my life, rightness, control. God had to break me of that. I'm, I'm grateful that he did. I, I just think about all the things that have happened since then. If I had tried to maintain control, oh man. It just been devastating for everybody around me. Later on, another situation in my life when I became a senior pastor for the first time and went through that first scenario where I had some congregants that were upset with me. Yes, yeah, it happened. I know it's hard to believe, but I had some congregants that were uh, pretty upset with me because I had let go a, a youth pastor. When I went about trying to explain it to people, 
I thought, I'm a persuasive guy. All I need to do is sit down and just tell them the facts, and you know, they'll come along. But every time I sat down with a different person, I found out after the fact the situation was worse. In other words, I was making things worse by trying to make them right, and I had no idea why. I had no idea why. And then a good friend of mine said, you know, Tom, can I just share with you something I'm experiencing about you? I feel like when I watch you in front of different groups, you're revealing a need to be affirmed by people. I know that there's a part of you that's just trying to say what's true, but there's another part of you that is also trying to get affirmation. And I think that's getting you in trouble. And that was a very powerful season of learning in my life where I learned to start looking more deeply than the intentions I'm willing to admit drive me. That there are other intentions that drive all of us. There's brokenness deep below the surface. And we can even be doing good things for good reasons, but also have ulterior motives that come out of that brokenness. I was without even paying attention to it, shaping every conversation, not just to get the facts out and help people, but to make sure at the end they liked me better than they did beforehand. Affirmation addiction. That was an idol for me that I had to let go of. And it was a very disciplined process that took years for me to recognize when it was showing its ugly head and keep sacrificing it to God. That was another season of growth in my life, just like God brings Jonah through these different circumstances. Another, another time um, that I had to deal with was um, this last season of transition at our church before we came here. We had been in a church for 10 years. It had been a powerful time where God was working. First time I spoke at that church, there were 45 people there. By the time we left, we had a congregation of about 500. We had built a brand new space. It was just a powerful season, and some people that weren't happy but had the power to get things happening behind the scene. I got caught unaware of those things and found myself the victim of a power move and found uh, that I didn't have the heart to put my family or the congregation through a struggle with that. And we were shattered. And, um, you know, I had a, a group of people telling me the exact opposite of who I knew myself to be as far as my calling, my gifts, my work ethic, my character, my honesty. There were those that had painted a complete opposite picture of it. And uh, I was put on the bench, put on the bench for a year, just waiting for God to say what was happening next. And out of that season, God birthed in us and others that were praying with us a vision for this church. And He did some great things, but if I were to look at that season for my life, I would say that what God was teaching me then was that he didn't need my abilities. He didn't want to work through me because I was gifted. He wanted to work through me because I was broken, because I was completely surrendered to him. I let go of the thought that I deserved something, that it was the giftedness that God used. It wasn't. It was the brokenness. It was the availability to him. And as much as I look back with a clean conscience about myself and my efforts and my walk with the Lord during those days, I I have peace about that. I'm very much at this stage a, a better pastor, I think, a better man, because that took out another idol in my life and put me on my face and put me utterly dependent on God. 
I'm telling you that story because I want you to understand all of us have a journey like that to take. And if you really took time to think back, if you're at all in a growth mode, if you believe God is currently transforming your life, you ought to be able to look back and see how that has happened. Great people of the faith were works in progress. Did you know that Martin Luther, who launched the Reformation and began a powerful work of God, did you know that he was a bigot with relation to the Jews? He wrote pamphlets, mean-spirited pamphlets against the Jewish people. God used him, but he was Jonah. C.S. Lewis, who many of us so appreciate for his brilliance in apologetics and his beautiful books that portray the gospel through allegory, the Chronicles of Narnia and the like. Lewis was a declared chauvinist, which is why I love to read him and my daughters don't. He was a great man of God. God used him to do a lot of things, but he was a Jonah. He was a work in progress. In the Bible, Martha, such a a godly woman by Jewish standards, the proverbial virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, and she's serving Christ as diligently as she knows how, and yet she's missing out on the most important thing, and that's the very presence of God in all of that righteous activity. She was a work in progress. And so now we we see Jonah a little more clearly as just one of us, just a work in progress, that God could use powerfully to bring a whole city back to himself, keep them from calamity, and then at the very next bend reveal another idol in his life. Now that was a long introduction, wasn't it? Wasn't so much an introduction, but the application in advance of the teaching. Let's look at it that way. Let's read the chapter together. It's just 11 verses. Jonah 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wanted to die, and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So what we want to do in these moments together is to look at how God works 
very intentionally in Jonah's experience in order to present to him a transformational lesson. It's interesting to note that the author of this book doesn't tell us how it ends. He leaves it as an open question. Now, Jonah told this story to somebody, so we could assume that Jonah got the lesson, but the writing style is intended to leave it open-ended so that the question hangs there for you and me to ponder in our own life. But in dealing with Jonah and bringing him to that point, he actually asks three questions. And those are the questions we're going to look at as we explore this together. But first, did you notice that three times in what we read, it says God provided? Did you notice that? Where else in this book does it say God provided? Exactly, the great fish in chapter 1. God provided the great fish. This is the exact same word. What the author wants us to know is that God is intentionally providing and offering these different experiences. But watch what he does. The first is a blessing. He provides a vine. But then he provides a worm. And then he provides a scorching east wind. That's God's gift to him. So the author wants you to understand that the great fish that saved him, the vine that sheltered him, the worm unknown that created a difficult circumstances, and the scorching east wind that made him dry and parched were all God's gracious provision to him. Isn't that great? There's a couple of thoughts here. One, sometimes God provides you with something just so he can take it away and teach you something. Sometimes that's what God does. You see, we think of provision as blessing. We're always looking for God to give in a way that we're set forever. God's not after your comfort. He's after your character. Let me say that again. God isn't after your comfort. He's after your character. And if blessing you with something that you perceive as good can help your character, but then if taking it away can make you even more godly, then that's God's provision for you. The times of poverty, the times of illness, that's God's blessing and provision in your life because He's not after your comfort. He's after your character. And that's what we see here in Jonah. All these things God provides for him because he wants him to lose another idol. Now, let's, let's look at these three questions. The way I want to approach them is we want to ask the question. I want to present to you what I think the issue is that God is targeting in Jonah and then what the lesson is that both Jonah and we are supposed to learn. So the first question is, have you any right to be angry? And that's right after the point where God relents from bringing judgment and calamity on Nineveh. We reviewed last week why this so angers Jonah, but let's go back to that verse. This is what we said is the theme verse of the book of Jonah. Let's say it together. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He knew this is the God that sent him to Nineveh. And at this point in time, he finds God's mercy to be extremely inconvenient. I think Jonah is struggling with being a part of the children of Israel in seeing God give this very same covenantal love, remember what that says, that abounding in love, that's God's covenantal love. It's his personal relational love. 
that the children of Israel saw as theirs, that's what God is extending to Nineveh. And this, this so angers Jonah. He was more than happy to receive it personally in chapter 2. But when it comes to the Ninevites, that's the last thing he wants. And he's angered at God because of it. So God says, have you any right to be angry? What is the issue that God's targeting through this question? I think it's self-righteousness. What right do you have to be angry, Jonah, given the fact that I just delivered you? I just saved you from death because of your disobedience. Where do you get off being mad that I'm willing to give that grace to someone else? Where do you get off thinking you're better than him? And the lesson is, I am no more deserving of God's mercy than anyone else. I'm no more deserving of God's mercy than anyone else. The second question, have you any right to be angry about the vine? Of course, this follows after this lesson that God takes Jonah through as he's sitting there pouting. God provides this vine, and Jonah's very happy about the vine. And then God provides a worm at night that eats the roots and the scorching sun and the the vine drifts away. All that's God's lesson. Now, is he really mad about the vine? Is that the real source of his anger? No. And here's an important lesson for us. Many people become ornery people. They're just angry about everything. Have you ever met people like that? How many of you have at least had phases like that yourself? You just have one of those days where you're just mad at everything, right? You're not really mad at everything, are you? You're mad at something, and it's making you hostile towards other circumstances that are inconvenient. We see that in Jonah here. There's really something that he's really mad about. It's the Ninevites. But now, because he's in this angry place, he's just mad about everything. That could be some of you in this room today. There's really a core issue that God needs to free you from, that you need to confess and relent and bring mercy to, and you'll become a much nicer person. And on behalf of your spouse and your children or your workmates or your classmates, can I beseech you to deal with it? Because whatever it is you think you're mad at in the moment, it's probably not. But Jonah's sure that he's mad. So what's his issue here? It's self Entitlement. I deserve this, right? I'm God's child. I'm, I'm God's prophet. I should get this. And then when it goes away, the lesson he's supposed to learn is, is that God's generosity is a measure of his goodness, not my worthiness. So when God blesses us, it's out of his goodness. It's not because we're deserving of it. Jonah needs to deal with that. At this point now, God applies The object lesson. You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It had nothing to do with you. And yet you're angry to death about it. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? So now he asks the final and ultimate question. And the issue here that God's targeting at Jonah is his self-centeredness. He's weeping and crying about his own comfort. And there's 120,000 people just inside the city that he cares nothing about. He'd rather see them judged. And the lesson for Jonah and for us is this. God's priorities do not revolve around me. 
say that. God's priorities do not revolve around me. Look at the person next to you and say it about them. Say you. God's priorities do not revolve around Word of the Lord. All right. There's some interesting things about God's lecture here that reveal a significant difference between God's attitude toward Nineveh and Jonah's. And that's really the big reveal here. Jonah's sense of self-righteousness and self-entitlement and self-centeredness is so obvious as he's in his own little angry world outside the city. His view of Nineveh is revealed completely when we see God's view in contrast. God makes two important observations about those. First of all, he numbers them. There's 120,000 people. Here's the first thing that that reveals. Jonah saw Nineveh as the enemy. That's why he wanted their annihilation. God saw Nineveh as people. People that he created, who reflected the Imago Dei, reflected his image, and who he wanted to see restored. Remember, Paul teaches us that our battle is never against flesh and blood but against principalities and spiritual forces in dark places. When we turn people into enemies, then we are not seeing them the way God sees them because our battle is never ultimately against people. He mentions cattle too, by the way. He says, and also cattle. What does that mean? For the vegetarians here, that means cows have souls, doesn't it? No. No, cattle is provision, it's wealth, and it's sorry, food, for the Ninevites. And so in pointing that out, he's saying, I care about them, and I actually care about their well-being. And then that phrase, they don't know the right hand from their left. What is that about? My stepmom, Libby, is one of these people who can't tell left and right. Anybody here have problems with that? She just doesn't get directions. That's what God's revealing. They can't tell their left from their right. What does that reveal? Okay. Jonah views Nineveh as evil. God views Nineveh as lost. You see that? It's so important. Jonah sees Nineveh as the enemy. God sees them as people that he wants to redeem. Jonah sees them as evil and worthy of judgment. God sees them as lost, desperately in need of light. And to understand that if they turn from evil, they can be forgiven. And that's why he finally asks the question that requires no answer. Should I not be concerned for the great city? Of course I should. And the implication is, of course Jonah should. Jonah has absolutely no right to be caught up in his own self-pity and his own anger. Jonah has no right to desire that God would judge Anyone, let alone the city of Nineveh. It's not his role. He is not judge. You are not judge. I am not judge. Because we're works in progress. We have no right to judge. We only have the right to be on our faces before God saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because I'm no deserving of your mercy than anyone else. We have no right to see anybody, no matter what harm they've brought to our family or to our nation or to civilization itself, 
as anything else than people that God loves and who are lost. See, it's hard for us to believe that the worst villains of history are redeemable. It's just hard for us to believe that. But from God's perspective, there is no one that cannot find the kingdom. There is no one that is so far into their sin that cannot be redeemed. Now, a whole big conversation can be had about when it is time to bring up arms, when it's time to enforce the law, when it's time to punish wrongdoers. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is from a Christian perspective, from a missional gospel perspective, when we lose the perspective about every human being on earth, that they are known by God, that they are lost, and God's desire is that they be found, then we are not following God's heart for the world. And that's ultimately the lesson of Jonah. And it's left with a question. Because just like Jonah, we have to decide if our lives line up with that. We worship, live, work, learn in another great city. Some don't think it's great. I do. I think Worcester's a great city. I think there are tens of thousands of people here that some would call evil, but God calls them lost. And his desire is that we would be the voice and the messengers of his mercy. What idols in our life, in your life, what selfishness, what self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-entitlement, self-centeredness, what is in the way of letting you be that instrument? Let's put those to death so that we can see this city transformed by the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we just come to you as those who are desperate need of your grace, so grateful that you provided it for us in Jesus, and that when we came to him, we found life, we found hope, we found forgiveness. We all admit, Father, we are works in progress. May we see the city, may we see the world around us as, as you see them, and be messengers of grace and peace in this season when we celebrate the Prince of Peace, in whose name we pray, amen.